folks. Welcome back to LA Not So Confidential. This is Dr. Scott. I am here with my best friend and co-host. Hey, it's Dr. Shiloh. Welcome to episode 52. It blows my mind, episode 52. 52 weeks in a year. There's got to be some number correlation, right? Oh my gosh, everything's numbers. Everything's numbers. Um, anyway, <laughs> so hi, it's a Thursday. It is a Thursday. Been a long work day for it's, some of us. <laughs> this has been my RDO, and I've been I have not been working, but I've been doing work at home for all day. So, first of all, what I want to focus on before we go any further is, you know, we are the biggest fans of our own fans. We can't believe that we have people that listen to us. Uh, we thought we'd maybe have forty people. <laughs> When we started right. this thing a few years ago and our listenership continues to grow and we have such great people. And now we're welcoming new listeners into the audience, which are those that found us after we were guests on Voices Sarah Turney's show, Voices for Justice. I had, I mean, we had been listening to it, preparing, and we've been in this conversation with, with Sarah for such a long time. We had no idea that we would get so many listeners from that and, and the feedback it has just been incredible. So thank yeah. you. Thank you for listening and thank you for your ratings and thank you for your critiques. You know, we, we've got welcome. thick skins. Yeah, <laughs> Welcome. You know, we, we just really have been able to see how people are sort of starting from the beginning of LA Not So Confidential. And it's kind of fun because it reminds me of older episodes from our first season and yeah. I, there's such a like nostalgia for those episodes even though I do want to cringe and be like oh my god can you work backwards because <laughs> we get better but everyone thinks that I know and there are some there are a couple of them where the sound is so awful like I, I think if I had been in the position of a listener I would have gone okay I can't take this but right you know you stuck with us through various uh versions of garage band and new new and old microphones so thank you yes thank you and welcome everyone and thank you uh to Sarah yeah it was a great opportunity and and we were we were so honored to be asked to do that yeah absolutely so today we are going to be tackling basically some like psych 101 stuff here. I mean, we are really getting to basics of human behavior and looking at why people do the things they do, especially when it comes to uh, negative or mean or violent behavior to other people. So we're really talking about things like authority and obedience and how influential we are on each other when it comes to our behavior. Absolutely. So I think this is going to this is going to be sort of like a like I said like this the psych 101 the basics but also we're going to tie it in because it is pretty relevant to issues going on today um, and I'm going to speak specifically about how we are kind of seeing that in the future of policing in this country and police reform. Well, we're also going to get a little meta because we're going to be talking about how the studies that we're presenting today and how they inter- intersect forensically actually were not reported correctly in the beginning. They were not handled correctly in the beginning. And we're talking about stuff that's 50 years old or longer. Um, but it's important for us to know. It was one of these things where as students, you're taught something that feels like it's a foundational pillar of your education and your training. And then a wonderful investigative journalist comes along and completely uproots everything about that study. And we go, oh, shit, we've got to rethink everything that we know about this situation. We're going to give several examples of that. 
Right. Yeah. What the situation actually was, you know, if the study was even run correctly when it comes to psychological studies and just in this day and age, like, what do we do with this information? So it's, it's going to be really cool. I think it's going to be fun. We're, We're essentially talking mostly about two real pillars of social psychology, which is Stanley Milgram and Phil Zimbardo. Fun fact, they were in the same high school class in 1950 at James Madison High School in the Bronx. They're classmates. It's so crazy um, that they went to school together and went on to Yale and Harvard to have these incredible careers. And, you know, I think there's, there's studies like this that I, you know, learn and then we think about later on in our careers in this way and examine and I go, wow, you know, <laughs> there, were, there were really like no ethics out there back then, but it gave us such a wealth of information. <laughs> How long would it have taken us to discover this if, <laughs> you know, there had been more ethics in place? Well, that's true, across, that's true across the board in many areas of research. Um, you know, there, have been, there were horrific, horrific things that were done during the Holocaust that have led to some of the medical advances that we use today. And that's a hard thing to sit with, right? I mean, that's an extreme example of like, just an absolutely atrocious, atrocious event and people being put through horrific experiences. And, you know, it's, it's a big philosophical debate is like, is it worth it? But as we've moved forward, where we are now versus where we were even in the 50s, you know, when Stanley and Philip, I'm just going to call them Stanley and Phil, yeah, or Zimbardo and Milgram, when they were around, that was a a particularly special time in the field of social psychology. I mean, it was just this explosion of people asking questions. It was like right on the cusp of the sexual revolution. People were asking really great questions. However, they were not as informed as they thought they were right it was basically a bunch of white guys i was just gonna say that it's just a bunch of white guys upper middle class who had a very limited view of the world and a very stereotypical unfortunately a very stereotypical world view that informed even the foundations of the ideas for their research and that is a big problem yeah and they're they're not going to go around questioning each other Oh, no. Or challenging each other. Because you think we're dealing with patriarchy and misogyny today. In the 50s, there was no concept of anything but that, except in a few few people that were trying to be radical with these ideas of equality and and otherness. And that was just quickly put down. Yeah, yeah. But it, it nonetheless, you know, I think it is a very interesting time to look at uh, social influence on human behavior. Um, yeah. You know, all the things you talked about, as well as, you know, kind of a, a civil rights era of its own as well, and then uh, post-Vietnam and things like that. So I, you know, the the parallels when you're looking at social influence and social justice are very interesting. And yes. it, all of almost all of these people we're going to talk about today, it's so interesting because they start off really kind of looking at the negative behaviors of individuals and a lot of them say that they were studying quote unquote evil, but then they sort of flip and their, their later research is really looking at like the goodness in people and what makes people uh, heroes or altruistic. And I think that's really kind of neat. It is. And actually, you know, I have to give it as much criticism as I have of Milgram and Zimbardo. 
you have to admire that they came around eventually to some concepts of, oh, evil's not this just very black and white definition. There are factors involved in how these individuals got to the place they are, which was not where they were in the 60s, but they got no. there. I mean, you and I talk about that all the time, but that wasn't something that just teased apart like that. So right. Zimbardo says that he he actually still uses the term, you know, sort of evil going on in the world. Um, and he says there's three kinds of evil that I think is really interesting to look at. He he looks at the individual, so the psychology of the person, which we could say this could be the bad apple in the bunch. He also says that there is situational type of evil, which is more of so, sociological, uh, environmental factors and influences. So that could be like, is it not just a bad apple, but maybe it's a bad barrel? We're hearing people talk about that a lot right now. And then also systemic is there's this evilness to systems, whether it be organizational or political or cultural or legal influences. And he says those are the barrel producers. So kind of like I liken that right now. I'm kind of wrapping my head around it as maybe policy that isn't yeah. good, but you have broken systems. Yeah. Broken systems. Yeah. And, and I'm thinking of it in terms of policy right now. Yeah. This, this seems like a really good three-legged stool for yeah. a basis of understanding. It seems balanced mm -hmm. and I'm glad he got to this place. I think it took a long time, but it's, yeah. it's a good model. Definitely. But I, I think the bottom line of, of everything your take home for today that, you know, about what we're going to talk about is that people are a very powerful influence on each other, whether it's bad or good, which, you know, we're going to talk a lot about the bad influences today. But at the end, I want to kind of bring us home back to the good because we can absolutely influence each other for good in this world. And it's it, it gives me hope in a time that we were talking off air before this that feels pretty hopeless and just upsetting right now. And, um, you know, I kind of love that I'm able to put my thumb on a couple of things that I say, you know what, I think this, this is the area, this is the future of what we need to start looking at. And for the times that just feel really tough, and there's been a lot of those days and nights, this is what is helping me keep some hope here. Yeah. So I'm going to start off with talking about Stanley Milgram. So Stanley Milgram has such a landmark study. In 1963, he was, he was at Yale, and he's a social psychologist. And in, in 1963, he had this idea of what makes good people do bad things. Essentially, he was really thinking about the Holocaust. He was really kind of fascinated with, could the Holocaust happen in America now, in, in 1963? And Boy, that's prescient, huh? Yeah, yeah, I know, right? And he was just really fascinated with the sort of the the worker bees of the Nazi organization and like, how could they do such horrific things at essentially the orders of you know, what he was hypothesizing as like a, an evil few. People kind of thought like, of course that, you know, that's not going to happen. We're so, 
woke now in 1963. <laughs> and so he put together this study and he, there's essentially three people in the study. There is an authority figure and it's typically just a person in a white lab coat. And then there is the person that they call the learner. And this person is sitting in a room where you can't see them. But the third person, the participant that comes in, that is the unknowing participant in this study is told, we're conducting a test on memory here. And there is a learner in the other room and you're not gonna be able to see them. But every time they get a question wrong on this memory test, you need to press one of these levers on this box. And it's now referred to as Milgram's shock box. And the shock box starts at 15 volts and it goes up in 15 volt increments all the way up to 450 volts. So, um, and by the way, the tapes, of, <laughs> the tapes of this are our basic education. Like you, if you're doing yes. even a bachelor's in psychology, and when you do a bachelor's in psychology, it's generally just the most basic sort of cognitive behavioral and the foundations. You don't even totally. really get to all the great stuff. But this is one of the great things in any psych education is watching these tapes, these black and white tapes. Uh -huh. And everybody is nervously laughing because you can't believe it's happening. Right. So before he started his study, he he pulled 40 psychiatrists at Yale and said, how many of my participants do you think will shock all the way up to 450 volts? And they said, 1%. 1% will go that far. Now, why do you think they said 1%? Like, where would they get that number? I guess they were looking at like the levels, what the, what the assumed levels of sociopathy or psychopathy were at the time. Was that it? Exactly. Exactly. So they're like 1% of the population is psychopathic, or they probably would have said sociopathic because it's the social psychology era. Um, but they were very wrong. 65% of the participants went all the way to 450 mm. shocks. Now, it's not just about shocking this person or pressing a lever they can hear the other person in the other room or what they think is what they're hearing the other person. It's actually a tape recording. They didn't know this. And so at the beginning, you know, 15, 30 volts, it's like, oh, you know, after they're shocked. And slowly as it goes up, there is screaming. There is, please stop. I make can't it, take make anymore. Make it stop, yeah. And at the end, as you're getting towards the end, there's like silence as if the person has died. <laughs> because the white, the lab coat guy is still directing the individual who is giving the shocks to continue giving the shocks, even though there's no response from the other side. Right. So if the participant is looking up at the authority figure with worried face or, oh my gosh, they're asking me to stop. Please continue giving the shocks. And he's just very simple orders and just repeating it over and over. And 65% of the people went all the way up to 450 volts. But we should clarify. We should clarify that actually there, there was no one getting shocked. 
Correct. No there was, was no one. No one was getting shocked. There was no one on the other side of that participant. That uh, sort of partition. It was just a tape recording or an actor being signaled to make these different levels of response. Correct. And he ran several different versions of this test, which I thought was really interesting. I think about twenty-one different versions or so. Um, but really, there there were over a thousand people that that participated and. What I find interesting is some of the differences here. So when women were participants, the women actually behaved exactly like the men. There was no more remorse or or no more empathy exhibited, um, no more remorse or anything like that on either end of the spectrum. They behaved just like the men. Um, There were a couple other variations that were interesting to compare. So there's one where the participant, the unknowing person, sort of comes in early, and this is all sort of staged. So they're seeing the participant before them. That participant, stay with me here, talk about getting meta, right? That participant is actually Confederate too. They're in on it. So this was a variation of the study. So the unknowing person walks in, the authority figure goes, oh, you're early, why don't you just sit down and watch, and we'll put you in next. So if the fake participant that they're observing says, I'm out of here. I'm not shocking anyone anymore. This is bullshit and gets up and walks out. Then the next participant is actually more likely to refuse to shock as well. Going back to what you're starting off this episode with talking about how we have the in, the, the ability to influence other people's behavior. Except even in rather, a good way. <laughs> yeah, even in a good way. And it's not being directive in this example that you just gave. It's about Someone like it's almost a shock of reality and a, a reorientation to morality and compassion and empathy. And just because, just by observation. Yes, just be, just watching it. So it's like they're giving tacit permission for you to not agree with this authority figure. Correct. And then conversely, if they had some setup where the participant would get there early and be watching, and if that person shocked all the way up, then that participant was more likely to shock all the way up as well. So it it really is is fascinating. Um, I I just love to like think of we talk about this all the time the the effort and the energy that can be used for good that can also be used for bad so easily. Um, but this is just particularly fascinating because it's the influence we have on each other when we don't even know. But if we're taking a moment to actually be mindful about it, we might be in a better place um, altogether. But it's really interesting because I know you're going to talk about Philip Zimbardo, um, but when he talks about Milgram studies, he says, you know, it's really interesting. I He sees the the shock box and the low levels of shock as... Even that first shock is really important. He said zero people refused at the beginning to even do it. Everyone at least shocked once. And he said, you know, that you're staring at this box with 30 levers on it. You know how far it's going to go up. And nobody was like, nope, can't do it. I'm out of here. Everybody at least began the experiment. Was there money involved? I don't know. So usually um, studies run at universities are for extra credit or for money. Um, so it could be for extra credit in your class or 
usually there's some sort of incentive to most. I don't know if there was in this one or back then. Because that's interesting. I mean, we'll talk about this a little bit later because you and I both did. Did you wait did you, for your dissertation? Did you do a did you use a human participant study? No, I already had a database. You had a database. Okay, so I did human participant study that was just giving them um, online tests, that, like really highly regarded psychological batteries that they could do very quickly. And I remember having this discussion with one of my advisors because I was, I was kind of going, I was going to put up like several hundred dollars as like incentive, like you know, a two hundred and fifty dollar pot and. All these participants, you know, three names would be drawn out of that and would either split the money or get it. My advisor said, well, no, we have to really think about this because that's actually too much. Over-incentivizing is not going to really give you the best outcomes for the thing you're actually trying to study. And then he spelled it out for me why. It was fascinating to me because I would have never considered that. Yeah, almost every study I've ever asked to be a part of has some sort of incentive, like post-school. I mean, extra credit was enough for me to sign up for a lot in undergrad. Right. But I think it's about the amount. I do, like, too. You know, like generally, because I get them all the time. I mean, it's pretty common through apps. It's like, we'll give you, we'll put you in a drawing for a $30 gift card. You're right. not going to get the gift card. You're going to be put into a drawing. So it seems like they found just the sweet spot that in, in this you know, the last 10 years seems to be somewhere between 20 and $30, yeah. a possibility of it. Right. So it's not really making or breaking whether or not you do the test. It's a little bit of an incentive, but it, I don't know. It's, that's interesting. I wish it, there must be studies on there, yeah, out there, there are. of <laughs> there are. how much of an incentive actually gets people to do studies. Um, but anyway, Milgram's study has been replicated all over the world, but it was really one of those first landmark studies that was viewed as immoral and unethical because of the high levels of distress that these participants were in being, I don't want to say forced, as they were told, please continue shocking. Clearly, they did not want to, and they were still doing it. Yeah, they were you know, still obeying. Going back to those tapes, I'm not sure if they're available on YouTube. Somebody's probably uploaded them to YouTube if you want to just um, search for the Milgram experiment. But there's a, a guy with glasses that is sort of hunched over the panel where the levers are. And you can tell he's really starting to freak out. And you can see in his eyes the stress between doing this against this person, you know, potentially harming someone on the other side of the partition versus following directives, you know, he's really in a bad place. And, you know, that has an enormous potential to cause psychological harm and traumatize someone. Oh, sure. Sure. You, I, you're literally by definition is a traumatic incident. I mean, you are led to believe that you're inflicting pain on someone and causing trauma to them, which then, causes trauma to you exactly and there's actually no trauma on the other side because there's nobody over there but you can still be traumatized by being forced to engage in these behaviors but yeah. i thought that was a really great basis for everything that was wrong about it and immorally the, the way it was done it certainly is a really great example of how people will follow directives and fall in line to an authority figure and that's that's how the holocaust happened yeah, is just exactly. well, I mean, I would say the difference in that particular situation is that the end of, you know, the citizens 
had been primed for many years prior to that, making people of color, Jewish people, gay people, the Roma, you know, so many aspects of society, they were, they were portrayed as the other because they were not part of the master race. So right. the citizens that became guards in the concentration camps were already primed to this ideology that only then made them more pliable to authority figures. Yes. And that, that is, um, we're going to talk more about that when we get to active bystandership, but the research shows that the more you devalue a certain population or type of person for whatever reason, the more likely you are to be biased or be mean or be violent towards that population. Also, Zimbardo, when he talks about Milgram's study, yet again, he kind of likens the shock box to how this desensitization and priming, like you said, of the Jews particularly happened over periods of time. Like at first it was like the first lever on the shock box is like when they had them wear gold stars. And then the next lever was like, okay, now you can't own a business. And then the next one, you know, just slowly yes. taking things away. And then it ends with, you know, death. All, um, once all, you're all the way up. All along the while using keywords that dehumanize that population. The big one then was calling, you know, what the catchphrase was mongrel or whatever the, the German or Yiddish version of that word was. But to portray individuals of this culture and race as being subhuman. And, you know, we have a version of that today. We call people thugs without thinking about it, about what, about the, the, the weight that that holds. You would think that, oh, you know, that was the 40s. How, look how far we've come. And I guess we haven't because we're still doing it. So should I start with Zimbardo? Yeah. Let's, All right. Let's, let's move on to him. So Philip Zimbardo is, is certainly a character. He's 87 years old right now. And like we said, this is uh, this is like the, one of the granddaddies of big social psychology experiments. He had his own version of an experiment that a lot of information and inspiration came from, but was really, really badly handled. Yes. But as a background, he was born in 1933. He is an American psychologist of Italian descent. He currently is a professor emeritus at Stanford University. And he's most famous for what we're going to talk about today, which is his 1971 Stanford Prison Experiment. His education is quite expansive. He started out with a triple major BA in 1954 of psychology, sociology, and anthropology, which Jeez. is a really fascinating combination. What an overachiever, first of Seriously, all. Calm yeah. down, Zimbardo. Yeah, um, I mean, but did you yes. ever go to any student functions? <laughs> right. But um, wow, what the trifecta. I loved anthropology. I thought it was so fascinating. I never took so any cool. anthropology classes. I know our friend um, Dr. Alex, is her BA was in uh, anthropology as well. Nice. So he went on to get a master's and his PhD in psychology from Yale. And then he taught at Yale, and then he moved over to New York University, and then to Columbia University, and then to Stanford in 1968. He's written multiple textbooks that are still really highly regarded to this day, and has really laid the groundwork for how we look at authority and control dynamics across society. 
even and it is even more impressive given what i was talking about earlier that he came from a time that was basically white male dominated especially in the field of psychology that's the vast majority was just white males in that um milieu so yeah and i the my idea for this episode i actually took a webinar training from him about a month ago so he's well, still he's still kicking it you know, yeah He's with Zoom and, you know, doing PowerPoints via Zoom, and it was very entertaining and lots of uh, media embedded in it. So for, what is he, 86, would you say? I thought he was 87. He may be 86. 87. His uh, presentations are way better than mine. Oh, geez. I guess we got to up our game. Philip, we got to catch up with Mr. <laughs> Dr. Zimbardo. Okay, so in 1971, he was awarded a grant from the United States Navy to develop a study on authority and control because, at least ostensibly, there's a little bit of like uh, conflicting information about this, because of the problems that the Navy was having in their prisons, in their Navy prisons. They were having a lot of rioting and, and problematic behaviors among the people that were put in the brig basically for various crimes while they were in the military, in that branch of the military. His goal for the Stanford Prison Study was to assess the psychological effect of a student taking on one of two roles in a prison setting, a faked prison setting, and randomly assigning by the flip of a coin from the volunteers, men were going to be divided into either being a prisoner or a prison guard. His statement is really spot on. I had been conducting research for some years on de-individuation, vandalism, and dehumanization that illustrated the ease with which ordinary people could be led to engage in antisocial acts by putting them in situations where they felt anonymous, or they could perceive others in ways that made them feel less than human as enemies or as objects. So right there, it's nailing down what we were talking about that process in these bigger pictures like the Holocaust and in some of the you know nationalist movements that view for whatever reason, whether it's race, skin color, creed, religion, whatever, viewing people as others. Right, so, and we, we think of those as like, you know, taking years or decades to build up over time and he's really going to show us that it doesn't take that long yeah that was the thing that surprised everybody about the study um for one another big thing that was surprising which we'll go into a little bit deeper is that zimbardo himself and this was badly done but he inserted himself into the experiment which should never right. ever have been done even even at that time um, that was a dumbass thing to do. Sorry, I'm just going to call it dumbass because that yeah. was a that was a really that was a he wasn't a student anymore. He should have known better. Well, so, yeah, yes, he he started to blur some lines that shouldn't have been just to run a clean study. To be right, honest, but exactly, and that's something we'll talk about too. Is like how necessary it is to run a clean study, and there are some things that have been set up since that time that designate how you're going to do that. So we'll we'll explain right. that a little bit more. But so this was happening over the summertime, right, while school right. was out, and they basically transformed 
uh, one of the halls into a makeshift prison at the university. Yeah, the first one was a was a basement, uh, I believe, and it was moved. It was moved for a, a reason. That's something that happened in, in the middle of it. Uh, it was designed to last between seven to 14 days. Uh, all of the participants were upper middle class white male students. Yep. And they were going to be compensated at $15 per day. Correct. Now, back at that time, $15 a day was a lot of money. That's a lot of money. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, just, you know, that's, that's interesting as an economic reflection of how far we've, we've changed. But I think it's hard. That's important to know because going back to what my advisor was talking about, it, incentivizing people to remain, did that high amount of money incentivize people to stay in the roles that maybe if they hadn't been incentivized, they would have sure. not done it so much. So here's the thing that happened is it all went to hell very quickly. Uh, there's wonderful documentaries about this. There's a great movie out there starring Billy Crudup about it um, that I highly recommend from 2015 called The Stanford Prison Experiment. I wouldn't say that it's like the best movie, but it's really well done and he's a great actor. Um, yeah, and, I, and we I should all be so lucky great. to have somebody as good looking as Billy Crudup play us, play, play us in a life movie of our Well, and here's my little dish about that. It's so funny how just Zimbardo, if you don't know Zimbardo, like look him up, but his facial hair has not changed from 1971 to this day. And it's just such a iconic look of his and then putting it on Billy Crudup like nails it. Like yeah. he's so attractive. And then you're like, but it looks just like Philip Zimbardo as well. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting. I think that's, that's a, another conversation for another episode about how people become identified with a particular look, especially men, because men don't necessarily in our culture have a lot of options as far as what's considered to be appropriate for expressing yourself in fashion and grooming. Yeah, so you're you not, you don't get a lot to work with. Yeah, so you get, you get it's like Bob Ross, the painter, the um, ASMR painter, basically. Yeah. You know, he regretted like, oh my God, this, this damn fro, now I have to have it because it's my, it's my, you know, calling card a signature basically. calling it's your yeah. ariana grande ponytail uh, exactly well she, look at her and she was brave she got rid of it good for her so um so back to the experiment <laughs> i know so brave sorry so sorry. brave ariana so going back the idea was to to observe the behaviors between the guards and the prisoners quote unquote and at first they weren't getting anything so Zimbardo kind of goes, okay, well, you're able to make things uncomfortable for your prisoners. You can uh, deny them some, you can deny them food. You can, uh, he shied away from physical interactions. Right. But, but like, other than that, like yeah, they. Yeah, making them comfortable, taking away cots or something. Taking like away that. their mattresses, um, making them defecate and urinate, urinate in a bucket rather than being having being able to have access to restrooms they used a closet as solitary confinement so i mean there's a lot of details that we could go into but basically it just fell apart very very quickly and within the span of i think 4 days they saw a radical 
change in the behaviors of all the people. Now, he made some choices. The guards were given sort of like off-the-rack khaki shirts and pants to wear and aviator mirror sunglasses so that the prisoners would not be able to have any eye contact with them. Right, and he got that idea from Cool Hand Luke. Oh, that's interesting. Yes. So, and with the prisoners, they were given very uncomfortable, ill-fitting clothing with stocking caps. Now, no prison has ever really made people wear stocking caps, at least in the last 70 years that I know of. However, that was something that Holocaust people that were in concentration camps were required to wear skull caps. And anyway, the prisoners just had numbers on their makeshift prisoner uniforms. Which goes to what? Dehumanization. Well, yeah, de-identifying, dehumanization. You're just known as a number, not a person. So they would deprive them of sleep. Um, they would, and cells were set up. The guards were only given wooden batons, but every time they would be settling down for the night, a new shift of guards would come in and rattle the cages and play loud music or not allow them to rest or get them to, you know, give them sort of mindless, useless activities of moving around. What happened was that there were people, there was one student who was like, peace, I'm out of here. Get, just open the door, I'm, I'm gone. And they knew they could leave at any time. Yep. They all knew they could leave at any time. But what was surprising was that how many stayed. And one of the things that was found in the interview later in interviewing the individuals who played the roles of prisoners is that some of them didn't want to leave because they were so concerned about their compatriots. So that's getting into an area of like almost sort of a Stockholm syndrome. Yeah, where it comes some sort to of bonding. Peers, like a right. trauma bonding episode. Yeah. Uh, so now the thing that we were talking about earlier that is particularly disturbing is that Milgram himself inserted his presence into the study playing a role of a prison superintendent. So he would supposedly mediate between the guards and between the guards and the prisoners, these disputes. And he was very directive and authoritarian pretty much because he instructed the guards to find ways to dominate the prisoners not with physical violence, but with almost any other tactic they could come up with, verging on torture. Um, like I said before, they use sleep deprivation, solitary confinement, removal of their mattresses. Now, we got a problem right here already. You don't change the goalposts in a study. All of those things are supposed to be absolutely nailed down every possible contingency for what could possibly happen in a study. And clearly this was right. not this was well, not constructed in that way. And this is super interesting because you start thinking about okay, nothing was happening. So if he had given it a little bit more time without intervening himself or giving direction, would this have still happened? Would nothing have happened? And who's funding him? Who's giving him this grant? And what do they want to see? And a right. lot of studies are funded by organizations that have a special interest. And if you come to somebody and try to get funding with a study that isn't particularly exciting, you might not get it funded. Or if it's not what they want to hear. So it's this is what, sort of the behind it, the scenes exactly. of research. Um, but 
you know, if he's like, oh, shit, the Navy gave me all this money to do this study and nothing's happening, then he should have let nothing happen because it means. Because that's information right there. Yes. That is information. No, you know, no reaction is data. That is really important data. But that's something I think that has become more important to understand than it was in the past. Like now. You know, I falsified a study in the sixth grade, (gasps) a science project. You criminal. What was it on? So my science project was whether or not the type of music that I played to a house plant would affect its growth. And so I played like uh, classical to one house plant and heavy metal to the other. And my mom is a conspirator in this because she helped nothing happened. And she helped me put the heavy metal one sort of in the oven. So it would wilt. I take my license so away right now. Ashamed. I am sorry. I'm just gonna. I'm. Look, I'm. I'm gonna. I'm gonna, click Laura? Your, I'm gonna click your camera off. I just can't look at you, Doctor Shaw. <laughs> it's my mom's fault. <laughs> I was going with her obedient authority ness. <laughs> Ooh, that was a really clever reframe. What? Okay. Yeah. Sorry, okay. Love you. Because she. Oh yeah. That's a whole like she didn't. She would not allow her daughter to fail. <gasps> part two okay sorry i keep interrupting you go ahead no no no, it's fine so it was interesting some of the things that came up was after this all fell apart and it fell apart very quickly they were interviewing the guards and the what the guards shared was that they had sort of an idea of what they thought zimbardo wanted to have happen in the study and they felt driven or impelled or compelled to make that happen to the best of their ability. So they themselves were part of falling prey to authority, even without explicit directives. Right. You want to make you want to make influence. Right. You want to make the superintendent happy. And on a Freudian level, you want to make daddy happy, basically. So less than two full days into the study, one of the students who was playing an inmate, uh, started exhibiting really severe signs of depression with uh, really what we call labile mood. So extremes of emotion, extreme sadness and crying, periods of extreme anger and agitation, and then other symptoms of depression and, you know, agitated, unpredictable physical behaviors. So he was acting out so in such an escalating manner in front of the other students that they had to, they remove him from the study and they put in an alternate. So that was really, really problematic. Yeah. Cause that's early on. And yeah, you're already very having early. one person. And I watched the movie again last night and I'm thinking, this is just crazy because these guys have to see each other in like physics class or something next semester. Like they're not even thinking about the consequence piece well, to it. So let me let me throw something into that that I, I couldn't help but think of is, you know, I, I've been pretty, I think I've talked about this on the show. One of the things I get to do in my current job is I participate in an amazing, really very forward-thinking, progressive and really cutting-edge program training law enforcement. Uh, We have people that come literally from around the world and around the country to watch how we train 
police officers. And the culmination of this week-long immersion into issues of mental health is situation simulations, where we place officers in situations with mentally ill people, except these are actors playing mentally ill people. Now, I was given incredible leeway and bring in volunteer actors and say, okay, I'm going to train you and educate you on this particular mental illness or this particular condition, and I need you to act it out in this way. And you have a goal. You have to get the officer to understand what kind of help you need. So I need you to stay in character as a suicidal individual. I need you to stay in character as a person suffering from severe psychosis. I need you to stay in character as an individual going through a manic bipolar episode. But you have to be able to do it 11 times in a row with only a couple of minutes break in between. And you you have a goal because you are actually teaching this police officer. Right. It's incredible. Uh, well, I've it's been a, able to observe it. It's, it's a really great, I mean, I can't believe I had this opportunity and it's it's fantastic. And I hope, my goal is hope is someday to be able to get someone to produce a documentary about it because I think it's amazing. But here's the thing that I found out. Now, I came from a performance background and I took tons of acting classes decades ago. And I studied with a particular type and modality of acting, Sanford Meisner, it's Meisner technique. But here's the thing. I'm not an actor. I took those classes 28 years ago or something. I don't know how to turn it on and off. And so we like we make fun of actors because it's like, oh, you stand around all day and then you do like 30 seconds on the camera and then you get to like have coffee and hang out with great people. And it's really not. It's about portraying a level of emotion and, and intensity and then having to turn it off and turn it on and turn it off and turn it on. So I got to the point before we got these actors coming in I could not do the suicidal scene anymore because it would ruin my weekend. We do these every Friday and I would do this, play the scene of a suicidal individual for two and a half hours and I'd be wrecked because I couldn't turn it off. So what's great is these actors who have come in is like, it is old hat to them. They have, they are such experts. They can access that emotion and then they can shut it down when it's not needed. So they walk away, they're ready for lunch, hanging out. And I would like, I used to be in a corner, you know, shoving candy. Like in my I'm mouth. suicidal because I've been playing suicidal. I know. <laughs> it's really rough. So, wow. I mean, it's a really great program, but like this, I want to, the reason I give you that long involved story is tying it back to Zimbardo's experiment is that none of these students had the wherewithal to go to these emotional places and have any kind of boundaries. Right. And so the prisoners had to be there all the time. Like you said, the guards actually worked in eight hour shifts. So they could go home at the end of their shift and be normal and then come back fresh, ready to kick some ass and like, Oh, how am I going to play it up today or tonight? And these poor prisoners have been there for the entirety of this. Right. And the prisoners started rioting in their own way. Uh-huh. They, they blocked their cell doors or they refused to wear the caps that they were ordered to. They wouldn't follow the instructions, but then, and so they, they were quote unquote revolting in their way, which then led to the guards from the other shifts volunteering for more hours because they've got to come in and quell the uprising. Wow. 
And they even like found further ways. They were trying even to engage in splitting of the inmates by creating not only the solitary confinement, but a privileged cell where that those prisoners could have better food and a more comfortable bed because they thought that that would be a way to get their uh peers to cooperate by saying like oh here's this incentive if you act nice if you cooperate with our authoritarianism you'll get a reward and it did not work out that well at all so how did it all end it ended very quickly because there was a point where a few days within the experiment where individuals were going to be interviewed now the person doing the interviewing was a recent doctoral candidate student her name was christina maslick she was actually dating Zimbardo and later married him, but she they're took still married to this day. Oh, I didn't know that. They're still married. Yep. Yep. Fascinating. Well, she basically looked at it, turned to him and said, this is bullshit. You've got to stop this. This is really dangerous. And yep. she was the only, and even Zimbardo to this day goes, says that she, of all the 50 people who were involved in setting up the study, observing, reviewing the materials, even coming onto the cell block, she was the only one that questioned the morality of the study. So after only six days of a planned two-week duration, the entire thing was shut down. Yep. So she said, I, "These, what are you doing to these boys? And she told him, like, I don't even know who you are. Because she, she first sort of voiced her distaste with what was happening and he's like but can't you see like the contribution to the psychological community with this and she was like oh who are you and he's like admittedly that's kind of the thing that made him go oh crap like yeah I'm lose this woman for one but she's willing to put you know, this relationship on the line because of how wrong she feels it is. Because she recognizes um, that it's, and maybe it's because she was more on the outside than the other people who observed. Maybe other people had more of some sort of vested interest in it. But it reminds right. me of, it reminds me of the way that the relationships uh, evolve in the first season of Mindhunter. There's a version of that where the psychologist character is the one who is going, hey, you guys have to be careful. Yeah, you're interviewing killers, but there's we've got to be careful about how we do this so we don't pollute the results that we're trying to get. So, exactly. I mean, my... It's clearly like, look, I... Who am I? I mean, who am I to question, the, you know, one of the big granddaddies who at 87 has better PowerPoints than I'll ever have? <laughs> but I do have a bunch of letters after my name, and I have the benefit of being someone who is recently to the field of psychology within the last couple of decades, you know, which is really there's been a big shift in the last 25 to 30 years in how we look at human behavior, how we design treatment plans. And by the way, I've worked for somebody that was almost Zimbardo's age, and it was hell being in company meetings with him. It was absolute hell. For what reason? Just like knew everything and ego or? Oh, he quote unquote knew everything and didn't know shit. Just like yeah. he would he would cite incorrect studies that were probably 50 years old and that we'd be around the table going, what is happening? And how do you, but then like, oh my God, I'm just, you know what? I'm just putting this together. I seriously am just putting this together. None of us 
would speak back. Challenged him. No one challenged him. Nobody challenged him. Wow. Because you just want to keep the status quo and get the meeting over with. Wow. Okay. I think I just had a cathartic moment hmm. breakthrough. Aha moment for Dr. Yeah. Scott. Seriously. You know what it's like? It's like um, my pet peeve is when people say words wrong or use them incorrectly, but no one has ever corrected them. So they just keep doing it. You know what I mean? Like, why yeah. doesn't any? Why don't any of us ever go? Because eh, we don't want to hurt people's feelings. It's not really authority, but no. But I think it's a, I think it's related to it. Um, I have you know my one of I have a double major in my BA, and one of them is English. And sometimes my grammar is really terrible. It's it's great when I'm writing because I can recognize it when I see it. But I do have some. I mean my poor sister like tries to correct me on a really bad one that I have. And I've tried to integrate her corrections, but it's taking a long time <laughs> anyway. Okay. We forgive it's, you. Yeah. It's hard to criticize people. I mean, it's like, you know, how many people like if somebody has bad breath, are you going to tell them that they have bad breath? That's such an awkward thing. I know, but everybody irregardless is not a word. Okay. Can oh, I it is now out? though. It is now. What the, no, the they, they put it in the dictionary. Because we've used it so much? Yeah. <sighs> and they're basically saying okay. that irregardless and regardless are the same word, which they're not. I'm sorry. I'm old school. What? It's, it's, I, I don't Structurally, agree. how can that even be true? I, I don't know. Yes, you can use the opposite of the word to say the same word. Stop That it. makes no sense. That makes no sense. <laughs> I'm done. <laughs> the dictionary is dead to me. I know. So back to the wrapping up Zimbardo is, you know, I, like I said earlier, it was really a reflection of the times. And I think the, the overwhelming presence of white male psychologists and psychiatrists and researchers, and also like the level of therapy that was done in the sixties was, was, I would say was primitive because everything was normed on white people and white people of a certain level of education. And there was a lot of othering clients from lower SES. And there was a lot of othering of clients of that were people of color. And no one was doing a lot. I mean, there was some research doing, being done in Palo Alto in the 60s and 70s when the psycho-cybernetic family systems people were doing work but even then that was on mostly white families and we've I, I thankfully we've come a long way but also prisons were very different then than they are now thankfully thankfully i mean they've they've come a long way from what they used to be right well and you know just want to touch on one point especially in forensic psychology when you're dealing with a prison population or a um, criminal population, maybe if that's the clientele that you're working with, so many of these tests that we use to, you know, perform testing, psychological or personality tests, um, intellectual tests, neuropsych tests were all normed initially on not a very diverse population. No, it was so, mostly, wasn't it like Minnesota multiphasic personality Minnesota. test was like the, the Minnesota was all white male college students. Right. The most popular personality test out there. So any outside of that norm is going to look as if it's, you know, someone suffering a deficit or a deviant or 
abnormal in some way. Right, particularly paranoia, like especially among races and people of color is like they would keep going, oh, well, these people by nature are paranoid. No, they're not. They're functionally paranoid because they actually are in danger in the community more so than right. a, a white person their age and gender. Not so, psych- psychotically paranoid. Exactly. Functionally. Yeah. Just to right, keep, right. keep yourself alive. Let's see. Where do we take it from here? I mean, it's there. there's a lot of things that I found fascinating about Zimbardo's book in The Lucifer Effect. This is one of his more popular books. It's used as a textbook, but it's also really easy to read. And he talks about these steps involved, like you were saying. And first one is mindlessly taking the first step, like not being mindful of the responsibilities of your job or how you view other people. And then that moves into being influenced by others or allowing yourself to go to a place of dehumanizing other people, which then leads to de-individuation of self. So it's just this slippery slope of steps that is a toxic cake. It goes into diffusion of personal responsibility, blind obedience to authority, uncritical conformity to group norms, and then the passive tolerance of evil through inaction or indifference. I mean, it's a... It's an, a very elegant model that he has developed, and it's chilling to look at it. It is. Okay, so I would really like to talk about this sort of new term to me, although it's been around in a lot of different ways, but that's active bystandership as opposed to passive bystandership or just sitting around watching things happen. Um, most of this research is being pulled from Dr. Irvin Staub. And he has also done a ton of research in the areas of evil and goodness. And his book is going to be in our show notes. (laughs) (laughs) I thought I had it at the end here in our resources, but I don't, and I don't have it in front of me, even though I've been carrying it around all day long. But he really defines active bystandership as a few things, being able to help others, preventing and resisting violence, and just working to improve society. So you can see why I've been drawn to this very recently. It's like this beacon of hope, especially in the work that I'm doing now. I'm I'm deviating a little bit from my direct uh, clinical work that I'm doing with law enforcement, and I'm working more in areas of the focus and the future of training and what that is going to look like, um, and as far as like policy and things like that. So, so I've been knee-deep in this for about three weeks now. And this is really a cool direction that makes me feel like I want to be a part of it. And I'm just, I'm again, like grateful that I'm here in in this period of time in my life when, you know, I think like I was saying earlier, things can just feel really hard and um, tough at this point. So, yeah, I was going to say that I, I love his work. And if anybody is interested in seeing visual representations of how it plays out, the show what would you do is a perfect example and it's really uncomfortable it's really i I get so uncomfortable watching it because even with my education and my training and i consider myself to be a pretty compassionate person I, i look at some of those situations and i think i don't know if i would be as ballsy as that woman who just went up and told that racist waitress to shut up or right you know you know there i mean it 
on one hand, it's an incredibly validating, like it does give you hope of like, oh, there are people who will stand up for other people. But man, they put, they put people in some very difficult situations in that. I find it fascinating. They really do. And I, I think in talking about this, part of it is going to that uncomfortable space and thinking about situations that we probably have all been in where we didn't stand up for ourselves or didn't stand up for somebody else. But And the key here is is standing up for someone else or being able to check each other so that things don't get out of hand. And it all it all sort of unfold as I go on here. Were you going to say something? Sorry. No. Well, I was just going to give an example. <laughs> like I, I mean, I, I'm trying to think. There were there were two examples. There was one where I mean, this is such a it's going to sound like such a silly example, but I remember being in school with a really problematic peer. This was a very odd individual who was very ageist in that she was a good bit older than the other students. And she had very ageist statements she made about the younger students, you know, because in a doctoral program, we had people that were 26 going all the way up to 65. And I had to take her aside one time and I had to say, oh, okay, so-and-so and so-and-so are really good friends of mine. And I understand that you're frustrated and I understand that you feel like you don't have anything in common with them, but these things that you're saying about them, for one thing, you shouldn't be venting to me because they're my friends and they're sexist and they're ageist and they're classist. And you're going to have to look at that. You need to look at that with a therapist. And the re I didn't, I mean, I was kind of trembling as I said it and she thanked me. She said that was probably one of the most valuable things anybody said to me in this program. And I wow. said, well, I'm, I'm glad you heard it. Thank you for listening to me. I know you don't yeah. like them and you don't have to like them, but we've got to respect each other. Um, wow, that's but, a great example. But that was a really, I mean, it was a great, simple example. It wasn't anything like, you know, big, like we're talking about some of the, you know, what we're getting to is what's going on in society today when it comes to bystander and conformity, right? Right. And so for you, do you think it would be easier to do something like that, that is sort of this one-on-one, -on -one, like you pulling her aside and saying that, rather than a situation like in what would you do? I think it was easier here. And I have to, like, if I really take, if I have to be really honest and take that pick and shovel to myself to look at what my motivation was, would I have had the same confidence or um, drive or ability to say that to a male or to Ooh. someone that okay. I felt intimidated by. I did not feel intimidated by this person at all. In fact, I was completely neutral about her. You know, I didn't have negative view. I mean, I was a little disappointed, but so I had to look at like, oh, am I in my maleness and my white male privilege Am I feeling like I have the ability to school this person? Yeah, or will it be interpreted as being intimidation or something like that? Oh God, I hadn't even thought about that. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Am I am I intimidating this older woman? Right. I, I don't know. I don't know. There's so many layers to it. Um, but the the idea here is that inhibitors are very pervasive. Um, but influence also works in the reverse. When you start helping other people 
and people see that it becomes contagious and this this idea of active bystandership is used in a ton of different uh, fields of profession, as well as campaigns. So you might remember the slogan, friends don't let friends drink and drive. Um, so that is, it, it's a slogan, but it is promoting, hey, I'm going to take your keys away, or I'm going to give you a ride instead of just letting whatever happen happen it's there is some active intervention that has to happen there and the idea is that there's several stages at which the intervention can happen and it can happen really early on and usually that's going to be the the less uh confrontational right because if you're like wrestling the keys away from someone who's blasted drunk as they're trying to get in their car it probably would have been easier at the beginning of the night if you're like, hey, you can just stay here tonight and sort of set it up that way. Right, right. So it it is used in formally in policy in the airline industry. So pilots um, kind of have this checklist that they go through with each other. And if some of them are exhibiting signs of being too tired, um, which they have regulations in place of like, you know, how many hours they can work on and off the job to make sure they get adequate sleep. So that's nice because that's built in. But another pilot can call them out, if you will, and say, hey, I'm noticing this, this, and this. Um, you know, why don't I take over or take over primary duties or whatever? They also have it in the medical field. You think of these, like, you know, I really want my pilot to not be sleep deprived, for one. Yeah. And I definitely don't or want the surgeon the operating on the, yeah. well, yeah, I know, there's that too. Um, or the surgeon to be sleep deprived or, you know, um, Dr. Death in there about to cut me open. So it, it makes sense that it's in these types of professions. It's also used in anti-bullying campaigns. Um, we've all seen the commercials now, you know, where the kid is seeing another kid being bullied in the hallway. And it's sort of this like playing it through if you do intervene or if you don't intervene um, or on college campuses, basically like safely intervening to prevent sexual assault. So, so this is nothing new. Actually, after the Rodney King incident in 1991, Dr. Staub was brought out to California to talk to a bunch of chiefs of police and representatives from departments about this very issue. If you guys have not listened to it, the Getting Off podcast has an amazing series right now on the Rodney King incident. And from a legal perspective on both sides, it's fascinating. So go listen to that. And they they kind of sort of adopted some of the stuff he was talking about, but not fully. And right. they didn't want to call it bystandership. They wanted to call it an intervention. So it's really interesting to look at this as sort of like the evolution of how it can impact police violence. But I like, I don't want to say this in a, in like, you know, watering it down, but I like the way that this concept is sort of packaged as let's take care of each other, you know, whether it's the doctors, whether it's the pilots, whether it's police officers, and take care of each other because we care about each other and we want each other to be working at our best. We know sometimes we're not at our best and we need to be called on that. And that could be because of high levels of stress or sleep deprivation. A big, there's a big example that comes out of New Orleans PD, I believe, about when they started their active bystandership program. And essentially, uh, 
A suspect was arrested and an officer conducted a pat down of that suspect, gave the suspect to another unit to basically transport to the jail while they're completing their investigation. Now, many departments have policy about if you are going to put somebody in your car, you should pat them down personally. And you should just, whoever's going in your car, it's sort of your responsibility to pat them down because someone has to, and that cannot slip through the cracks. And in this particular incident, so the officer in this case that was the arresting officer and did the initial pat down did not do a good job. Um, but the officers who then took the suspect to transport him didn't want to challenge that or make it seem like they didn't trust him. So they didn't conduct a pat down of their own, even though they saw that he didn't do a thorough job. And that suspect had a firearm on him as he was being transported to the station, was able to slip through, you know, his handcuffs, pull the gun out and murdered one of the police officers as they were driving him to the station. So this is all to say, you know, this is, that's an example of just wanting to keep each other safe, that it doesn't matter. You should be able to go, you know what, I'm going to pat this guy down again. It's no disrespect to you. It, please don't take it personally. Um, but this is my job and we all need these sort of checks and balances in place. And it really is nice that it's about not only the, the, active bystander intervening, but the other person accepting that with some grace of being able to say, hey, I'm not going to take it personally. And and I've actually talked to several people over the last week that are like, oh, heck no. Like, I don't care if someone pats someone down that I just handed off to them. They should be because it's their life. Um, so there's this piece of you know, making sure that we're shifting mindset from it being a, a critique to being an aspect of teamwork, which is kind of nice. But yeah, it's, it's also, you know, how I use the example of being able to intervene early, it's knowing yourself too, and knowing your own triggers. So I could see this as officers saying, hey, partner, we are being dispatched to this child abuse call. I just wanna let you know, nothing pisses me off more than a child abuser. So if I look like I'm getting a little hot, can you like check me so I don't lose my cool or so, you know, I don't impulsively like go off on this person. And that's such a cool early intervention because it's kind of giving permission. Like, hey, if you see me getting heated, take over you. I'm totally like giving you that because I know my weaknesses. Yeah, I think that's, that's a huge culture. Yeah. And that's going to be a huge cultural shift in law enforcement. And I think it's already happening. I mean, I certainly see that it's already happening, but certainly as, as we all can see with civil unrest and some of the incidents that have been happening, that there are some different agencies that work very differently and do not emphasize that. And that's going to have to change. It's a structural issue, right? I mean, the structure has to change. It is. I, you know, I, I see a lot of hope for these bigger agencies that are already in very diverse areas that are already actually very progressive, you know, have made tons of changes over the years because they do serve a population that is incredibly diverse. And most of their officers reflect that and are diverse in and of itself. Um, but I see this being accepted there. It's 
I don't know, middle America that is still kind of the slower to kind of catch up with some of these pr more progressive policing issues. Um, but I think right now is a huge wake up call that everybody should be listening. And they have to, things have saying, to change. What can we do better? Yeah. Everybody's got to be better. Yeah. There's no excuse anymore of like, oh, we're just podunk, whatever. We don't, you know, we'll catch on in 20 years because it's already hundreds of years too late. So I want to wrap up bystander effect here, active bystandership, um, just to talk about a really important leg of the stool, if you will, and that's the mental wellness of law enforcement officers, because we know that officers who are suffering with trauma and wellness deficits are more likely to get into a use of force incident. So there's also a layer of this that obviously really speaks to me with making sure they are mentally well and and implementing self-care and have the psychological support that they need because when they're functioning at that level then they have better decision making skills they are not acting impulsively um, and they're just able to serve their community better if we are one lowering the risk to trauma, but also taking care of them when they are traumatized. So I just, I like that that is really a piece of it too, because that probably for me is going to be the, the longer, you know, long-term thing that I can help work on, on this. Yeah. I, I, that's something that gets kind of lost in the conversation because it's a reflection, you know, to tie back some of the ongoing themes of what we talk about in this podcast is the idea for secondary change rather than primary uh, change. Is you have to change the structure, you have to change the broken structure, and we have to find a way where we can change the way that people operate and check each other and support themselves so that they're not in these positions where they allow really horrific things to happen. Right, it's and just, I think it's incumbent, but it can't be incumbent just on the individuals. It's the structure and it's our culture that has to change and we all have to be willing to talk about it. Some Absolutely. some people are more, some agencies, some entities are more willing to talk about it than others, but I, I really do feel that we can move forward and we also have to be willing to find a way to move forward and move through it. Absolutely. And I, I think, you know, this is probably a good time to just say that for you and for me and to us and in our homes, Black lives absolutely matter. And we do see a future where there is a difference being made and things are changing. And you know, I know that the slogan is defund the police. To me, my interpretation of that and what I've gathered from just educating myself and, you know, everything that I've been listening to recently, listening to people, is it's collectively imagining a new public safety future where Black lives do matter, but it's re-envisioning justice as a whole, not just right. policing, which is a huge chunk of it, but justice as a whole. I don't know if you want to add anything. Well, to that, I was just going to say, I'm, I'm glad you're touching on that. We've, we have, you know, we've thought about it for a while about how can we say this in a way that's, that's respectful and really attempts to honor the enormity of this issue. And, you know, we can come out very clearly and say, there are no modifications to that statement. Black lives matter. There, there is no modification. There is no BS of all lives matter or these lives matter. It's right now, 
don't bury the lead. People are dying. Black lives matter. I, I saw the most perfect metaphor for this. It's as if your child has cancer and you have been asked to go to a cancer fundraiser and stand in front of a podium or stand behind a podium and talk about your child's experience of trying to survive cancer and saying that your child's life matters. And then somebody jumps up on stage and grabs the microphone and says, no, all child, all children's lives matter. They're missing the point is that it is, it is a, a particular section of the population. We've got to catch up to this and we can, we absolutely can. Yeah. Yeah. And you and I st stand in this unique, in the middle of this unique Venn diagram where that's one of our circles. And our other circle is that we are pro-law enforcement and we are recognizing the need for change and training in training and policies and processes like discipline and culture and whatever other circle we have going on. You know, we, we are in the midst of a lot of these different worlds and lots of you are right. lots of people are going through their own personal journey right now so it, we want to acknowledge that and i know this this is feels like it's kind of coming full circle to when the the protest started and we were doing our live stream at the time and people were you know talking about what the experience was like for them but we want to acknowledge to all of you listening that this has been really hard and that's okay. And you can have your feet in two worlds. It's not an all or nothing. And for, for our listeners, you can have any feeling about that, about what we're saying. It, I, I'm not going to disrespect. I, I will have no less respect for someone that absolutely disagrees with me because that's the space that we as mental health professionals have to inhabit is making room for everyone's intellectual and emotional stance. So I, I, I respect you. You may not respect me, but I respect you. And my hope is that we all find a way to check ourselves and keep moving forward. Perfect. All right, Dr. Scott. So I guess we'll just close here and we'll see you next time. That's a lot. This has been a long episode. We didn't even get to a bunch of our material, so we're probably going to have to do a part two because bystander effect is a huge, huge pillar of social psychology. And Yeah, we'll, or maybe we'll bring it up on Get Vocal on Saturday. Oh, that's perfect. I hope everybody will uh, join us on Get Vocal. And um, again, for people new to the podcast, thank you so much for joining us. We're so excited to have you here. Please join us on social media. We have a great active Facebook group that has some great discussions. We're on Instagram. We're on Twitter. Please join us. We're having a great time, and we, we love the ideas that come from you. The communications that come from you are just wonderful. They make our show better, and I, I feel so lucky to be part of what we're doing. So thanks for being part of it, and thank you to my lovely co-host and bestie. You're welcome. All right, we'll see you next time on L.A. Not so. Confidential. Good night. Bye, folks. Bye.